I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World... Fall 1944. Paris has been liberated, saved from destruction. But this diversion on the road to Berlin has given the Germans time to regroup. The American and British armies press eastward, facing the enemy time and again in the Hurtgen Forest, during the Market Garden invasion, and at the Battle of the Bulge. All the while, American General George Patton and British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery vie for supremacy as the Allies' top battlefield command. Taking Berlin is a pulse-pounding race into the final desperate months of the Second World War and toward the fiery destruction of the Thousand-Year Reich, chronicling a moment in history when allies became adversaries. Here to talk about his new book, Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich, I am really pleased to welcome back my guest, Martin Dugard. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author and historian who has written on topics ranging from presidents to Egyptian pharaohs. Author of Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights, he is also co-author of the popular Killing series with Bill O'Reilly, along with other acclaimed works. Marty, thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, it's always a privilege to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I have to start by asking you, as we were reviewing your new book, we noticed your bio from the publisher, which says, quote, known for his fondness for adventure, he is also a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and has flown around the world at twice the speed of sound. 
So we have to start right there. I and mean, what was it like flying around the world at twice the speed of sound? It was like a supersonic party bus, quite honestly. It was 1996, and it was on an Air France Concorde, and it was chartered by Coors Light in an attempt to break the around-the-world speed record. New York to Toulouse, Toulouse to Dubai, Dubai to Bangkok. Anyway, 31 hours and 28 minutes later with a seven-course meal for every three hours of the flight. It was fantastic. You know, and as we landed, the group on board the plane chanted, you know, one more lap, one more lap. So it was pretty cool. As I remember, I flew the Concorde twice, and as I remember, it's not very big. It's tiny. It's like a military jet because the walls are so thick. So you can't really move. It's not one of those things where you, you congregate in the aisles. But it was, you know, I love that moment, and you've experienced it, where, you know, just before you go through the sound barrier for the first time, they kind of tilt the nose downward to gain airspeed. Then you feel that kind of that thump at the back of the plane as you punch through the sound barrier. And it's an amazing feeling. I really felt bad when they took him out of service. And I understand now, I think Boeing is building a new one that's even faster and bigger as the technologies have evolved. So we may presently see some really, really fast commercial airliners that'll make going New York to Tokyo pretty easy. Now, in addition to being a fellow at the Royal Geographical Society, which I did not realize, you are a very steady writer. And of course, the last time we talked was about your first book in your new taking series, Taking Paris. What inspired you to write Taking Berlin as the next book in the series? Paris ends in August 1944. And when I finished that, it felt to me like the war was over. But in reality, the war wasn't over just because Paris was liberated. That was the moment when everybody kind of felt like we could stop worrying about the Germans. We could stop thinking about the Japanese. But when you look at it, those last nine months between August and May 1945 were some of the most ferocious fighting in Europe, both in the East and the West. And it was just one of those things where I felt it's so much fun writing Taking Paris. It was just such a great, you know, it was nice to write in my own voice again. And it was nice to really tell a really good, vivid history. So I thought I'd take another crack at it. It was fun. You know, the difference is, you know, Taking Paris was a book about one place. Everything pivoted around Paris. You had all the events, even the events that took place in North Africa were all about getting back to Paris and liberating Paris. And, you know, that Casablanca, the movie Casablanca thing about, you know, we'll always have Paris. But Taking Berlin is much more about the individuals involved within those campaigns, because some of these big battles in Taking Berlin, like D-Day and Hurtgen Forest and Market Garden and Operation Bagration on the Russian front, they're just so big. They're a book in and of themselves. So it looked for, you know, people like, you know, Patton, Montgomery, Churchill, Eisenhower, then, you know, lesser characters like Martha Gellhorn and General James Gavin to tell the story through their eyes to give it a much more personal and immediate feel. So... As I gather, you actually physically go and look at the sites you're going to write about. That must be a hoot. <laughs> it's so much fun, you know, and the great thing is, you know, my wife comes along as my assistant, so she's a write-off, so which is great. But, you know, there's something about, for instance, when I, I was writing about market gardens, so I literally went to the place, you know, on the Belgian-Dutch border where the British troops jumped off, then I crossed all the bridges that the U.S. Airborne and the British Airborne had captured you know, in their attempt to push across the German border. And then I went, you know, Nijmegen was the last bridge that we captured, which has since been rebuilt after being blown up in the war. But I stood at the spot where the 82nd Airborne, you know, launched these flimsy canvas boat to try to paddle across the Wall River right into the thick of a very fierce German defense. They launched all these boats and half of them were gone and half the men were lost. But to literally walk from the place where they 
put the boats together. They walked up and over the sperm. They walked all the way down to on the grass to the river's edge and, and launched those boats. You know, to walk in their footsteps and to see the river going past and feel the sand beneath my feet, it's a great way to write history. I'm sure you saw a bridge too far. To tell you the truth, I was reluctant to tackle Market Garden because I remember watching that movie and thinking about how confusing it was because you had all these different characters. And so I tried to simplify that battle too much. But that scene, you know, Robert Redford plays the protagonist in that scene crossing the wall. So I'll never forget that because he has everybody, you know, starting to say Hail Mary or an Our Father or something like that, which I don't think really happened, but it makes for great drama. That particular scene of crossing the river is one of the most amazing in the entire movie. And of course, Market Garden itself, it's fascinating that the Dutch had actually, as part of their war college, every year they had their final exam was how do you go from Nemegan to Arnhem? And if you took the road along the dike, you always failed because it could be stopped by just killing one tank. And nobody in the American or British Army had asked a single Dutch officer how to get from Namagan to Arnhem, and they took the road that was guaranteed to fail. You go back and look at that, and it's, it's one of the great weaknesses of the Anglo-Saxons that they don't particularly like to learn from others. It might well have worked under other circumstances. And of course, there's this great sort of competition between Patton and Montgomery. How do you personally come down on that? You know, you're dealing with both of them, and they're the two dominant ground force personalities in the Western Front. How do you measure the two of them? You know, they're two very different kinds of generals, and you have to think about the politics at the time, too. The British had suffered greatly. You know, they were in the war from May 1940. We didn't come in for almost two more years. And the British were devastated. They lost so many men. The nation was on the verge of being impoverished. They were being bombed daily. And Montgomery was a national hero. And you know, Eisenhower had to play politics with Churchill to, you know, to give Montgomery all the men and material in the north to push into the Ruhr Valley, which was, you know, the hub of the German military movement. Meanwhile, Patton's rampaging across France, crossing into Germany, but he runs out of gas because, you know, Eisenhower playing politics gives Montgomery stuff, you know, and the thing is, there are two different kinds of generals. You know, Montgomery is very much a set piece general. He liked to husband his resources, plan the battle, then finally launch a battle once there was no possibility of being defeated, whereas Patton just told his people, just keep on going and we'll catch up. And it was a completely different kind of warfare. But coincidentally, it's very much like the German Blitzkrieg that rampaged across Europe in May 1940, but just in reverse, going the other direction. Do you think either of the single thrust would have worked if they had put all the forces behind either Montgomery or Patton? No, I don't think so. Just because there were two different military objectives. You know, Patton was coming in from the south. And once you get into Germany from where he crossed the border, it's a long way north to Berlin. Whereas you know, Montgomery had the shorter route, but he was much too timid as a general to take advantage of a very of a lightning fast movement. But I think you needed to have two of them. But remember, that's what Hitler tried to take advantage of at the Battle of the Bulge, was driving a wedge between those two thrusts so he could drive on towards Antwerp and hopefully take over and divide the American forces and sue for peace. It's also interesting in terms of personalities. You do something I don't think I've ever seen done before. You have a significant part of the book relates to Martha Gellhorn, who's a war correspondent and Ernest Hemingway's third wife, and has quite a story on her own right. What led you to include her? It was purely an accident <laughs> because I wanted to put Hemingway in the book. 
And, you know, like every red-blooded male American writer, I grew up thinking Hemingway was, you know, just the be-all and end-all. And I love his participation in the war during 1944. But as I began to write about Hemingway, I found that he spent a lot of time just back in Paris. And there was really nothing to write about. I wasn't going to write about his drinking or his philandering. And I stumbled across Gellhorn by her writings. And then when I found out that she had stowed away in a ship so that she could cover the landings at Omaha Beach and that they took her press credentials away. And then she finds a way to Nijmegen and she's arrested and she falls in love with General James Gavin. Then you got a story because it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And in the middle of all that, if you read her journals, you know, her marriage to Hemingway is falling apart. It finally falls apart right after the Battle of the Bulge in Luxembourg City, right near Bastogne. And there's something really poignant about hearing her voice. But at the same time, World War II books don't often get a chance to really put women in there because women were often relegated to the role of a nurse or something like that. You don't have very many prominent, powerful female voices. And the fact that she met her match in James Gavin, and then I read Gavin's wartime journals and he talked about her and talked about meeting her. And it just seemed like something I could drop in there to kind of add something to the mix so it wasn't your typical World War II book. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. 
Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I spent a year in Brussels working on my dissertation, and I had never run across this story that the city stayed drunk for a week in celebration of freedom, and partly because the Nazis had left behind 80,000 bottles of claret. Yeah, isn't that great? It's just one of those things that you find it. You know, when Brussels wasn't all that damaged by the war, I mean, relatively speaking, you know, and so for them to celebrate like that, I like that moment because I'd written about the fall of Brussels and taking Paris. So sometimes as a writer, when you're doing something across a couple books, it's nice to see an arc to the story that you didn't expect coming. You mentioned that Gellhorn goes on after World War II, and she covers Vietnam, Central America, and the American invasion of Panama in 1989. She must have been substantially younger than Hemingway. Yeah, Hemingway at the time, he was born in 1899, so he would have been 45, and she was 36. But he was an old 45, and she was a young 36. I mean, if you see pictures of him then, he does not look good. He's overweight. He's grizzled. He's kind of got this roomy look about his eyes, whereas Gellhorn had to live by her wits, I think, especially if you're a solitary woman in a war zone. You know, it's interesting. I'm researching the new taking book, which is Taking London. And I was back in London about a month ago, actually right after the Queen died. And I made it a point to find Gellhorn's old apartment which is on Sloan Square there down in central London in Chelsea. And I just kind of went and sat on her front porch, and she's got one of those blue ceramic things on the front of her house that says that she once lived there and gives her credentials as a war journalist. It was like communing with Martha Gellhorn. I felt like I had to pay my respects. She would almost be worth an entire book on her own right. I mean, her last assignment is reporting on poverty in Brazil at the age of 87. Yeah, Brazil is hard to travel around it's a busy country. And to go there when you're 87, deliberately seeking out stories about poverty, which means you're going into places that are less than, I wouldn't say civilized, but places where you kind of put yourself in peril. It's a gutsy woman. Yeah, she must have been. And then you noted that finally when she was suffering from blindness and ovarian cancer, she took her own life in 1998 with a cyanide capsule. I mean, this was one tough lady. I didn't know she killed herself until... I got to the end, I mean, until I wrote the book, and I was kind of doing the afterward, like, oh, what happened to Martha Gellhorn? And then, you know, when you write about historical characters, and, you know, you've done this yourself, I mean, you get to feel like, not that they're your friends, but you feel a very 
big connection to them because you know them as well as you can possibly know them. And so when I read that she took her own life and that she was suffering and that she lived such a long life, it was really sad. It was hard to write about that. It was hard to write those sentences. You start really from the Western Front, but then you pick up on Stalin and the enormous Soviet offensive. What's your sense of Stalin? I don't have many good things to say about Stalin, <laughs> but other than he was a master of real politics, he knew how to play the game. You know, Hitler's invention of what he called the big lie was co-opted by Stalin, you know, in use right now by Putin just to justify all his actions. I've got to say that Stalin, despite all of his shortcomings, all of his paranoia, he had a knack for the big operation. He was the one who really liked these big offensives. And, you know, Operation Bagration is almost completely forgotten in America and Britain, but it dwarfs D-Day on a massive scale. It was, I think, a 620-mile front pushing out across Germany, all opening up at the same time. That's unheard of. That's just a massive show of force. I do think people tend to have a sort of Western-centric view of the war, but the truth is the Soviet army was enormous, and its use of artillery was extraordinary, and they really chewed up far more Germans than did the British and the Americans. Oh, yeah. And there was an element of terror, too, because when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, they were awful. Burned people inside buildings and raped women and total scorched earth policy. And the Soviets saw no reason not to return the favor when they came back towards the Germans, which is why German forces were so terrified of the Soviets. And, you know, and as Gellhorn noted, when she did meet up with the Soviets towards the end of the war, these people were, it wasn't just men. They traveled with, you know, they had female warriors. And these people were just tough individuals. They were just used to fighting and doing whatever it took to win. Yeah, I think the leading sniper in Stalingrad was actually a woman. I mean, the women played a significant role in the Soviet military because, you know, they were fighting for total survival. And Hitler made very clear before the war that this would be a racial war between peoples and that their goal would be to annihilate the Poles, the Gypsies, the Jews, and the Ukrainians and the Russians. And apparently very few of the senior German officers objected to it. This myth grew up after the war about the bad Nazis and the good German generals. But in fact, when you go back now that we've got a lot more access to material, they were all in on this. And they entered the Soviet Union with a viciousness that was just breathtaking and slaughtered people. And I think you're exactly right that when the tide turned and now it was the Soviets on offense, they were as ruthless in trying to destroy the Germans as the Germans had been in trying to destroy them. When Berlin ultimately fell to the Soviets, and you take this force that has been approaching the city for months, and then you finally put them inside the city, and the Soviets weren't that smart. Like They would steal light bulbs, but they didn't realize that light bulbs didn't make light unless they had a source of electricity. But at the same time, when they went into Berlin, they killed every man. They raped women from six-year-olds all the way up to 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds. It was just rapacious, the way that they just destroyed the German. It wasn't war anymore. It was an act of utter revenge. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. 
I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you have this enormous Soviet effort, which the Germans are really focused on trying to stop. I mean, far more of the German military is spent trying to stop the Russians. And yet you point out something which I did not know until I looked at your book, that we actually had a plan called Operation Eclipse. Describe Operation Eclipse. We'd gotten really comfortable with the use of paratroops before 
World War II, the, the idea of paratroopers was a very utterly new concept. And General James Gavin, you know, one of the big players in the book, he jumped over Sicily, he jumped on D-Day, he jumped in Market Garden. He had learned how to wage war from the skies, and he was selected to lead this final assault on Berlin. It was going to be a massive parachute drop on Berlin. They were going to seize the airport, they're going to seize all the power stations, and Gavin was even going to jump with a full-dress uniform inside his kit bag so that when the time came, he could change out of his field fatigues and into this full uniform to accept the German surrender. It was going to be just this huge coup de grace. And ironically, you know, one of the reasons that Eisenhower stopped the Americans at the Elbe and didn't go that last distance into Berlin, which infuriated Patton, was because he feared the loss of 100,000 American lives. And he could have done that all that if he had, you know, done that final jump with Gavin. And then, of course, you know, Stalin found out about the jump because he had his spies around there and he only accelerated his pace into Berlin. But I'll tell you what, boy, an airdrop on Berlin at the height of the war would have been spectacular. That would have been a moment. Do you think, though, that they also would have run a real risk of being isolated and destroyed? Good question. Yeah, I would suggest that would be a reason for canceling the jump. But at the same time, the German army was in disarray at that point. A lot of people trying to move west to meet up with the Americans before the Soviets could catch them. But again, when we think of Berlin in the abstract as doing a parachute drop, it's not like jumping on Nijmegen, where you're taking this very small Dutch city. You're taking a nation's capital. Really, it could have been catastrophic, let's put it that way. I agree with you. That makes a lot of sense. I think Eisenhower had two attitudes. One was that because he'd gotten into this argument with Marshall, General Marshall, when they were planning the Normandy landing, had said to him, you know, maybe you could take the paratroopers and drop them about 40 miles inland and create kind of a fortress. And Eisenhower said, you know, I'm not sure we can supply them 40 miles inland, and I don't want to risk losing all of my paratroopers. And it was the first time that Eisenhower just flat turned Marshall down and said, I'm not doing that. So I think he was very cautious, and I think that he was a little underwhelmed by Market Garden. Eisenhower had presided over paratrooper landings in North Africa and in Sicily, and he understood the business he was in. But I think his other thought, which was a very American thought, was, look, if the Soviets really want to take Berlin and the Soviets are willing to take the casualties to take Berlin, why would I have Americans get killed when we can just relax and let them do it? We tend to forget that the Americans in that period, as one general who I recently read a book about the Third Armored Division, the general who had written the book, who's a modern soldier who'd retired recently, kept repeating that the model back then was send a bullet, not a body. You had a chance as an American, you used firepower to save lives. And you were very conscious that you didn't want to lose many lives, whereas the Soviets didn't care. They were willing to accept a huge number of casualties in order to achieve their goal. And I've always wondered about that. You know, you have Churchill, who is thinking like a politician, and who's thinking about the balance of power after the war, really wanted somehow to get into Berlin. But he also was no longer in a position to take Eisenhower head on because he knew that Roosevelt and later Truman would always back up Eisenhower in that kind of an argument. The other thing that hits me is that in the South, you have Patton going driving east as fast as he can. And Patton actually does liberate areas that have already been allocated to the Soviets. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. You know, kind of going back to the Eisenhower thing, I don't make as much of Eisenhower in this book as I could have just because I was trying to 
keep the focus on movement rather than kind of staying behind the lines. But Eisenhower was a master politician in the way that he came to terms with the fact that Montgomery was going to be imperious and that Churchill, because the coming at the end of the war and Britain was not going to play a big role in the, in the post-war Europe or even in the post-war world because they lost all their colonies. And Eisenhower was very delicate in the way he played all those things. But when he does make that call not to go into Berlin and save American lives, he endured the wrath of Churchill, but it can't have been that great a wrath because there was no disciplinary movement against by Marshall or Roosevelt against Eisenhower for what he did. You know, as for Patton, the thing about World War II is it's one of the last timeless wars. And by that, I mean one of those biblical style wars where to defeat the, the enemy, you went in, you took their capital, and you conquered everybody within the capital, and then you won the war. And Patton, initially, he is driving towards Berlin when he crosses the Rhine, but when he realizes that it's not going to be that kind of outcome, and he realizes what the post-war Europe is going to look like, that push of his across southern Germany and into Czechoslovakia is really bold when you think about it, because at some point, Eisenhower would have not have resupplied him anymore. He would have been stuck out there with Third Armor just totally trying to find a way back home. So it was a very bold maneuver on his part. Eisenhower had an exquisite sense of the power of logistics. He understood that he could cut off ammunition, he could cut off gasoline. And this had happened to Patton once before when he was on the edge of France. You know, the tanks stopped because they haven't got any gasoline. Eisenhower used it in a confrontation with de Gaulle, where at one point he threatened to cut off all of the supplies going to the free French divisions if de Gaulle didn't calm down. And he used it between Montgomery and Patton to sort of keep the two of them balanced. Plus, the truth is, under the chain of command, these were tough guys. He could have fired Patton any morning if he wanted to, because Patton had already been so controversial. And Bradley did not particularly thrilled by Patton anyway, and Bradley was his immediate superior. But it's funny to look in that period. You have a remarkably different story here from the story that you had in Paris. This is much more sprawling. It covers much more territory, and it's much more complex. I think it's really a terrific addition to your Taking History series. And I gathered from what you said a while ago that Taking London may show up, and we might be able to next year have you come back and chat with us again about another aspect. I'd love to. And I think you found yourself a really fun niche. Between that and working with Bill on the Killing series, it doesn't strike me that you have much spare time. <laughs> I keep regular office hours, and I make sure that at the end of the day, I at least go for a walk just to clear my head. <laughs> it can get a little intense. I want to thank you for joining me. I think your new book, Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich, is a great addition to your series. As always, Marty, I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, my pleasure. It's always an honor to talk with you. You're a smart guy. I love talking to you. It's great. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guest, Martin Dugard. You can get a link to buy his new book, Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World 
can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.